Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Name Three Songs. I'm Sarah Fagan. I'm Jenna Million. And this is a podcast where we challenge sexism in the music industry and empower fangirls. Because let's be honest, fangirls knew about that band way before you did. And if you stick around long enough, we'll also let you in on some new music the girls are already crazy about. So before we get into things today, we do have some very exciting news that we've been basically hiding from you guys that we need to let you in on. I've been like dying to tell you all this and we had to keep it a secret for so long. And this is like, it's a really big day for us. It's a really big (laughs) deal. We're so excited. Ah. So Jenna, do you want to let everyone in on our big secret that's happening? (laughs) Yes. So we have officially joined a podcasting network called Wizard Studios. Woo! Woo! (laughs) Yeah. We're big girls now. (laughs) (laughs) Going to the big leagues. And with this new partnership, we're going to be able to give you guys so much more insight into the world of music and even hopefully get some really cool musician guests and even more industry people involved in Name Three Songs. And really, this is going to help us share our message with more music fans like you guys and invite them into the Name Three Songs community. We're genuinely so excited to see where this next step takes us and that you guys are all here for this with us because it's just like such a big milestone and you've been here for so long and we love you do it so without much. you <laughs> not to get emo on main but you know <laughs> we love you guys we couldn't do it without you and speaking of we also have two new members to our patreon community Ophelia and Shanice thank you guys for supporting us and if you listening would like to support the cause or get more content from us you can do so at patreon.com name three songs or if you just want to like give us a cute little tip one time, you can do that at paypal.me slash name three songs. But it's no big deal if you don't want to do that. We love you anyway. All right. So now that we have our big news out in the open, Sarah, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about the importance of African-American women to the history of rock and roll music, because as we've said in the past, it really did all start with them. And so with that being said, I just want to make it clear that obviously, because we are talking about the history of America, we're going to be talking about some torrid affairs. So we will be referencing slavery in America as historical context to this conversation, which will include mention of sexual assault amongst other fun things. You know how it is. So if this is a trigger for you, please listen to this episode with caution because it does periodically appear within the context of the episode. We have been acknowledging the fact that rock music and just most music in general was sort of built on the back of Black women, especially African-American women. And so we've acknowledged this, we've mentioned it in TikTok videos, we've done all that sort of stuff, but we've never dove deep into it and really educated ourselves on just how whitewashed our rock and roll history mindsets were. And so we picked up this book called Black Diamond Queens, African American Women and Rock and Roll. And this is written by Maureen Mahone. And so this book sort of dives into some forgotten, some less forgotten African American women in music and how they really shape what rock and roll is 
today, like what we think of about rock and roll music. And they just had such a big part in the creation of rock and roll music. And literally even just like the name of it was created because of stuff that they were doing. And it's just really wild. And I'm really excited to sort of talk about this. And it's so crazy when you're reading things and they're like talking about how they had to have different concerts for white and black people and how there was like all this different segregation going on for these shows when these women were really changing the game for music and it just gets like the history just sort of completely forgot about them because that's what history does or the people who are writing the history textbooks are white people I think that it's important since we do have a lot of listeners not based in America for us to sort of give context to the like political, racial, economics that were going on throughout this like time span that we're going to be talking about today. So Jenna, do you want to give a bit of background to anybody who might not be aware? Yes. So primarily the music we're going to be talking about started in the early 50s and went through the 60s and into the 70s. And that directly coincides with the civil rights movement in America. So in 1954, we have Brown versus Board of Education when the Supreme Court ruled that segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. But of course, that wasn't truly implemented until a few years later in 1957 with the Little Rock Nine. But a lot of people probably think of Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on the bus, which was 1955. And that kind of like sparked a lot of the movement. Like Martin Luther King Jr. entered the picture. There were Montgomery bus boycotts. This like got a lot of things going. And this pretty much spans into the 60s. In 1963, you have the March on Washington in which Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. There's a Civil Rights Act of 1964 that passes equal employment for all. The rights are still going on. 1965, you have the Selma to Montgomery marches, also known as Bloody Sunday. There's a Voting Rights Act in 1965 prohibiting racial discrimination. And then in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and you also have a Fair Housing Act. So you can see, like, this took a very long time. This was going on for more than 10 years, probably closer to 15, 20 years. And we're still fighting these types of racial inequalities today, obviously. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the music and a lot of what we're going to be talking about directly ties into this because there's quote unquote, the black music charts, the white music charts, and like camouflaging black voices as white voices and like all of this stuff, which is just crazy and absurd. But that's kind of like the background context to what we're going to be talking about. It's so interesting because I feel like from my my knowledge of like music history and stuff I was very aware of just how important black people were to the history of rock music but not necessarily black women I feel like a lot of that was sort of pushed under the rug it's a lot of like Motown Chuck Berry that sort of information whereas like a lot of these women were even doing this before Motown and Chuck Berry were even really that relevant but it's just interesting because I feel like as white people with white privilege we just have this ability to just be like that happened such a long time ago and it didn't and it's just so crazy to like see it there in black and white and even though you were like sort of aware that like it hasn't been as like a clean cut away from the like racial prejudice of that time that it was like a, a constant battle for everything even when people were successful it didn't it didn't matter the color of their skin was more important than anything else which I think kind of blew my mind because I feel like my thought process on a lot of it was like well they were trying to make things better so of course black people if they were doing the same thing white people were doing would have been treated the same way but that's literally not the case so 
I think that that was like one of the biggest takeaways I got from reading this book was that even though they were equally as famous or doing as much, they still weren't viewed as such. Yeah, they weren't given the credit where credit was due a lot of times. And I think that for me and my, so like I took a history of rock class in college. And then I also took a class that was essentially like following music and the civil rights music. I think it was like black music and advocacy. And so we looked at like artists during this time period so there was a little bit of overlap there but i remember from my rock music class like we talked about bessie smith which like isn't included in this book because she was even a bit before but i specifically remember like big mama thornton because she's like the one who's credited with like the hound dog song before elvis so mm-hmm. that was very much like part of my understanding of like rock and roll was like elvis stole rock and roll from a black woman like that's what i knew about it but yeah there's like a lot of players in here that i wasn't as familiar with it's so fascinating i mean we're, we're gonna dive into all of this but even like the shirelle like i'm like yeah they're a girl group like the ronettes and like there's all these other girl groups i'm like cool but i didn't know exactly how important the shirelles were like they were kind of like the blue print for this they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame i didn't know that and so yeah there's these names and that are like familiar that i'm familiar with but like really don't know anything about them and i think you know it's it's one thing to say like if you just don't know a lot about rock history in general it's easy to know absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. but it's another thing to like study rock history and these names to be left out yeah i mean i went to like hippie high school so one of my like history credits for a whole year was just american history in conjunction with rock history so it was like talking about stuff that was happening in American history and then comparing it to like stuff that was happening in music history basically but a lot of it was just talking about how the rhythm and blues and jazz scene in Chicago really helped shape rock music and like how Elvis would take a lot of what he was doing from that and so I think it also just depends who's teaching the class because I mean like an old white I don't know who was teaching your rock class but like an old white man <laughs> an old white yeah. man was teaching my rock class was teaching my class so I feel like he was uh, teaching a lot from like his own knowledge and I feel like you run into this issue a lot and I don't think that they're necessarily coming from a bad place but I feel like men who lived through a lot of that era I think have the mindset of well I like was a teenager at the end of like that huge rock heyday so like I know enough and then I I feel like they don't necessarily do their due diligence because they assume that they know everything already. And I feel like that's also why like in these classes, a lot of these women tend to be left out because we did learn about like the Shirelles and the Ronettes and like those sort of girl groups because they did have a lot to do with the British invasion side of rock music happening. I didn't even know that. I knew that, which was weird. But I think also my teacher really, really liked The Who and (laughs) Rolling Stones and stuff. So I think it was just like what he was interested in, you know, but it's just interesting like the different ways that you're sort of taught about the history of this and it just is dependent literally on who's teaching you yeah i mean we had a textbook from my class oh yeah no i mean i was like in 11th grade <laughs> like oh hippie high school so <laughs> we had no textbooks we just had this man's brain <laughs> It was just really interesting reading through this and being like, oh, I was like acutely aware of this. I was acutely aware of that, but I didn't realize just how important they were. And I mean, the other thing that really stood out to me was just how little control these women had over their music because they weren't necessarily writing their songs. So these songwriters uh, at the time would just sort of sell out the songs for 
like royalties and not talk to the artist about it. And so they would run into these issues of like they would do well with a song, but then a white person would go and cover it and do better. And then their version would sort of just get lost in the wind. Which is really upsetting because, I mean, with Big Mama Thornton and Hound Dog, I mean, that was her first and only Billboard number one song. And then Elvis covers it and is like, I have no idea who that woman is. And it's like, sir, sir. But yeah, so obviously these white people, as I just said, like they were favored in so many degrees in the world of music to the extent of their mediocre versions of heartfelt songs were taken more seriously. And so in the intro of this book, Maureen sort of goes through a couple highlights of her thoughts and feelings about like why she thought that this book was important to write. And so she acknowledges that like when addressing like the history of rock music, there is a challenge and it is because everybody's gone ahead and whitewashed the shit out of it. And so she She quotes this musicologist called Lori Stoss, and she is talking about how when feminist scholars write about women in mainstream rock history, they, quote, have to point out their influence on more prestigious male artists' repertoires in order to, like, locate them within the male-centered history of rock. So literally what I just said is it's like, oh, Hound Dog, and now everybody's like, oh, wow, there's more behind it. So we're, like, connecting somebody to a white man, even though the white man connected him to the African-American woman. So what? whatever but she goes on to say how like this is a logical move to make because quote in order to have our work taken seriously we're obliged to cite it within the context that has gone before but in doing so this has the effect of like reinscribing the mythologies that feminist scholars are hoping to like get rid of so I just thought that it was interesting of her being like yeah we, we have to tie these women back to white men for us to like place them in history when like they are the ones that created the history in the first place Yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting. In the intro, she acknowledges how much of this is like white British men's fascination (laughs) with black women, which is quite interesting that literally like every chapter relates back to British men. Blows my mind. But um, along with that, there's like this in general, like fascination around blackness being viewed as like a spiritual and sexual freedom. And so she writes black music, black people and black culture represented a respite from the structures of white middle class propriety that prohibited forthright engagement with bodily pleasures. This perspective, which rested on the worldview that separated the mind from the body and reason from emotion, grew a long-standing notion that blackness was a respiratory of physical, spiritual, and sexual freedom. And one pathway to this freedom was through music. She goes on to talk about like the Rolling Stones' Brown Sugar, which is one of their biggest songs, and Mick Jagger, and specifically his fascination with black women. She goes on to say like, these excursions allow white musicians and fans to tap into perceived hotness and coolness of black musical forms to experience everything but the burden of actually being black which like is so prevalent even today mm-hmm. even today of being like basically rap and hip-hop is like the number one genre in the world right now and yet still like black people are being murdered daily by cops in america and it again it, it's i mean i saw this come up in conversation especially at the height of like the black lives matter movement this summer of how can you like black music and then not speak up when black people are being murdered yeah it's crazy how like we see this overarching thing happening then and happening now too just off of that while reading this multiple times all i kept thinking about was the jordan peele film get out (laughs) 
which like again of course but i just mean it's it's that whole thing where there are so many of these white people who like want what black people have but also are just like but i like my white privilege and like no i don't and so i think it's that thing where it's like nowadays at least to some degree like when a white person enters a black genre like eminem or whatever there's always like that scrutiny around it which i think is much more deserved because there is like a culture behind it whereas i feel like with a lot of things that white people do especially white americans there's like there's no (laughs) culture there's no culture and so there's there's no history behind it really and when you do look back to find the history behind it it's usually been stolen from black people or other people of color or just other real cultures And so I I just find that really interesting where it's like there isn't anything that you can steal from white people and really feel bad about it in regards to music or other things because they didn't really create any of it. And there's there's no culture behind it. It doesn't, it won't offend them. I mean, it will, but it shouldn't. Like there's no reason for them to feel offended. Should a black person show up and start singing country music or start singing folk music or whatever? Because if you go far enough back in the history, a black person started it probably. And so it's just really interesting again to like see this in like black and white and like her not exactly saying that, but really being like, yeah, they were just really obsessed with the idea of like black women and like black women's sexuality and like their ability to like be outspoken and all these things and it's like so they like when women have thoughts and feelings of their own but like not I don't know there's just so much to unpack there about the fact that like they are just commandeering something that's not theirs and sort of nudge nudge wink winking at it while also just like taking away their like humanness in the yeah. way that they sing about them. Well, yeah, most definitely. And also, I mean, going off of that, like a lot of what we're going to talk about is also centering around the sexualization of black women. And in the book, Maureen says, black feminist scholars have connected this condition of forced sexual labor to the representation of black women's sexuality, tracing the image of hypersexual, sexually available black women to antebellum rationalizations of the rape of enslaved black women. The quote, construction of black female as the embodiment of sex, unquote, which burdened black women and the responsibility for the sexual attraction they received from white men developed alongside similarly flat stereotype of white women as ideal femininity innocent of the taint of sexuality so there's actually like a lot of different stereotypes under this umbrella of black women but sarah did you want to like mention anything about like the, this is kind of known as like the jezebel stereotype yeah so in the intro like Maureen does acknowledge specifically the like Jezebel myth amongst other things but basically what she's saying is how there is this like stereotype that's rendered around black women as oversexed Jezebels or asexual mammies defining black women by their sexuality or lack of it these quote controlling images as black feminist theorist Patricia Hill Collins has termed them communicated that black women were inadequately feminine and lacking in humanity and so there's a lot of like discourse course online about like this Jezebel myth and like where it sort of started from and a lot of it is going back to like slave owners sort of viewing these women as breeding options basically again taking away their humanity and just turning them into an object to be used for something to sow their seed so to speak yeah and a lot of times part of the myth was that they are always desiring sex and so therefore they can't really be raped which is disgusting and awful yeah and i mean 
later on in the book she also mentions how keith richards was saying how like the reason why he enjoyed spending time with black women compared to white women is that like they don't have that connection after sex so it's more like hanging out with a man that you can sleep with (laughs) you can sleep with and so he basically was like oh yeah like they don't get as emotionally attached like they're just there to have like a fun time like they're just like cool they can chill but they also fuck you and it's like sir no Yeah, very one-sided image. Yeah, I think that there was just like a lot of, I mean, not I think, I know based off of what we've been reading, like there was a lot of just alongside everything else, the fetishization of these Black women. And because of that, it affected the style that they dressed, the style that they sang, a lot of what was going into their music. And also it affected the way that these white men in music were viewing them and how they were sort of using them because there have been like some women in music that their musical abilities were just completely brushed aside and their history was rewritten as them being groupies because all they sort of turned into was like a song or two on a record and like an idea and a biography of a white man. That kind of goes into the politics of respectability. So as a reaction to being stereotyped as overly sexual in comparison to white women, there was this counter stereotype that quote, many African women, especially those of middle-class status strived for to choose to downplay and even deny their sexual expression. And scholars have labeled these practices as the politics of respectability and the culture of dissemblance. And she goes on to say, behaviors through which African-American women presented a public face that demonstrated their femininity according to the expectations of European American middle class culture. So I think that's what you're kind of touching on, Sarah, of like basically these women in the early 1950s kind of following this very like clean cut image. And then as we get later into like rock history, we see people like Betty Davis, like fully taking a hammer to that and knocking it down. And it's really interesting to read about these women and like visualize in your head them going from wearing sort of nightclub club singer ball gown sort of looks even when they are singing rhythm and blues and like very rock heavy music just to fit a certain like feminine image and then as things sort of progress and they start to realize oh our voices are being heard we're not being as sort of like pigeonholed anymore them sort of coming into their own and acknowledging their femininity in other ways that aren't as comfortable for men because a lot of rock history has been like these men towing the line of like what is gender even though that's not really what they're doing but they are wearing dresses and just like really leaning into the fact that like they can do whatever they want and these black women were never given the opportunity to experiment in that same way but also on top of that I mean the first chapter in this book discusses Mama Thornton and about how she was very outspoken and she wouldn't always dress feminine like sometimes she would wear more like masculine clothes and she never really really fit into the ideal that people were looking for. And a lot of historians that focus on this stuff seem to think that the reason why she didn't have the success was because she was just like so loud and rambunctious and like would drink alcohol on stage and do very quote unquote masculine things. And so I feel like also for a lot of these women, knowing that that's what happened to her, it seems like they leaned even more so into the aggressive feminine image of like those long ball gown dresses and that sort of thing. Another thing 
thing about Mama Thornton's character that's interesting that she points out is like a lot of the people she interviewed about reviews she read about her personality. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people said she was very gruff Mm -hmm. and like very kind of just kind of like abrasive. But then she like interviewed people who actually worked closely with her. And she was like, that was just kind of her shield to the world. And underneath she was funny. She was nice. She cared about people. She was this warm person. And but it's like, if all the reviews about her are only talking about how gruff she is, how abrasive she is, people will have a very one-sided view of somebody who's more than that. It's just interesting because, like I said earlier, with a lot of these artists' music not being, I mean, sort of being stolen by white people, there is a lot more of it of like them feeling like they need to really fit within a, a specific mold that is accessible to everyone. Because there's lots of talk on these that these artists would be invited to go on tours with white artists and to play like big venues in major cities and stuff and that there would be riots or other things going on because while like desegregation was like slowly happening people were still really mad about it and so there was just a lot of backlash about like these things so sometimes they would have shows where like none of the white performers would be there because it would be like a more black city or sometimes they would have shows where like the black performers wouldn't be there or they would be allowed to perform but then it would cause a riot and people would get mad and how when they were in cities that were already getting mostly desegregated that even still sometimes the venues would have like black people on one side and white people on another and so it's just very interesting when the world of music is very much trying to become just like one meshed all together sound that the world is still separating them in those sorts of ways where it's like oh like certain people can't play certain cities or certain people can't go to shows in certain cities or other cases where the term rock and roll was literally created for the version of like rhythm and blues that was being perpetuated by white people so it's like they were trying to make things more palatable for white people and in doing so giving these black people who are creating the music less airtime and access it was actually in the second chapter about laverne baker and she's one of the ones in particular where marine talks specifically about the touring with other white male performers and i think it was really interesting even also big mama thornton like was touring from the age of 14 mm-hmm. but like she was in um like one of the like variety show type things but it's just interesting that it's like white men were touring and like young black women Mm -hmm. whereas i feel like middle-class white women or even middle-class black women but that would be like looked down upon as like no that's not for our social class Mm -hmm. but because black women are so often seen as like entertainment it was like they were working class they were the entertainment i don't know i think it's interesting they were the only women like on tour with these other acts but laverne specifically they're talking about how inherently just playing rock and roll at these clubs even if they were like half white half black was challenging the status quo because the songs in the genre was mixing the sounds like you said and laverne specifically like said that she didn't have anything to do with the civil rights movement she was just like it was happening when i got there it was happening when i left like it Mm -hmm. wasn't about me and then marine comes back and says like well it is true these artists might not have intended to work for social change that the presence of these predominantly black interracial shows did mean something in working with white artists and in bringing black american music to white and integrated audiences, Laverne Baker and her fellow musicians initiated significant change in American culture. And so basically along the process of these tours, a large portion of young white Americans were able to embrace the styles of 
African-American music. I mean, the one thing that Maureen does touch on a lot is that a lot of these white people were very much just like fetishizing the idea of Black people, which again comes back to my point that I said earlier about the whole get out idea of those white people seeing something in Black people and being like, I want my soul in that body. (laughs) And it, it sort of feels very much like that theme kept coming across where it's like these white people were very happy with having all of the privileges that they had but at the same time they were like we want to go dance to like the funky music because that's what we like <laughs> like it just i don't know because it, it feels very much like a lot of this history is surrounding just white people trying to come up with excuses as to why they were okay with sort of taking something that wasn't theirs and not even really changing it that much i don't know it's just interesting and like the thing that really stuck out to me about this Laverne Baker chapter was like I went to go listen to her music and I number one didn't recognize her face but number two recognized her voice so I've heard her sing before but I didn't know who she was but also in listening I'm like oh I've heard this song before I've heard this song before and in this chapter there's a lot of focus on how these white artists were taking Laverne's music and while she didn't write the songs she worked really hard on the arrangements of these songs and so that was something that was hers and that was like her artistry her creativeness and then these white artists would come in and there was nothing really in place to make sure that these artists who were working so hard on the arrangements of these songs were credited in any way or anything and so there was this section of this book where this white artist named Georgia Gibbs would literally anytime Laverne would release a song and the song would start to do relatively well Georgia would then go in and record her own version of the song and by her own version just a white lady singing a black woman's arrangement of a song and in the book it says how georgia was in new york city and she was like they only sell black music in harlem and it's not like i'm taking the subway to harlem to buy this woman's records so i don't know what you're possibly talking about (laughs) yeah so how could i have possibly heard her rendition of the song but i do need to just read you guys my favorite thing that i've ever read in my whole life so basically because of this laverne was getting quite frustrated with like american music because she was like my songs are freaking good you guys love the white versions of my songs which are literally just my songs with a white lady singing them but you're not appreciating me so Laverne gets the fuck out of America so she like goes to the other side of the world she goes goes to Australia she goes to Japan she performs for like the military she does all this stuff where she's like respected more but because she was flying such a long way and over so much water she decided to take out life insurance policy on herself and put it in the name of Georgia Gibbs because she knew that with the loss of her own life that Georgia would be the one affected most negatively. So she writes this letter in the explanatory note with the policy. Dear Georgia, in as much as I'll be flying over quite a stretch of blue water on my forthcoming Australian tour, I am naturally concerned about making the round trip safely and soundly. My thoughts naturally turn to you at this time, and I am enclosing an insurance policy on my life in the amount of $125,000. This should be at least partial compensation for you if I should be killed or injured and thereby deprive you of the opportunity of copying my songs and arrangements in the future. <laughs> Ooh, I've never, this. I've never loved a woman more. <laughs> but like honestly, I'm I'm so proud of her. <laughs> yeah. Because that must be so frustrating when you are clearly doing so much for music and this like tiny white lady comes around and is just like, I'm gonna do your songs in my voice. 
Yeah, and I think like she was fighting to get credit and like was mm-hmm. never able to get it. Yeah. And then she just up and went and quit rock and roll and like went and lived in the Philippines or something. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And it was just really interesting sort of learning about the fact that she was working with representatives and all these people to sort of try and change the copyright laws because she just was like, this is getting ridiculous. Because I mean, throughout history, as I said a thousand times, like so many of these black artists technically in a way had their music stolen from them. While yes, they didn't write the lyrics of these songs, they did have so much more to do with them. And I mean, contrastingly, like we mentioned Big Mama Thornton and Elvis Presley in the beginning, but I just want to like come back to that point because Janis Joplin covered some of her songs later on. And Janis Joplin was actually a very big proponent of giving Big Mama Thornton credit where credit was due. And she would even take her on tour with her and all of that. So, I mean, it just goes to show the reverse of it, you know? And Maureen also points out how much like Janis Joplin like really almost like studied under Big Mama Thornton. She took like so much of her like Mm -hmm. vocal range and how she presented herself and kind of made that in her own. And she actually gave her for credit for being that inspiration. Which is what you should always do. And I think that also comes to play a lot with with the whole British invasion obsession with these African-American women artists. And while they were like fetishizing them and sort of in some senses dehumanizing them because of that the Beatles were like obsessed with the Shirelles and they would talk about it at any chance they get it's like me yelling about Louis Tomlinson is John Lennon with the Shirelles <laughs> which is interesting because the Beatles made their U.S. debut on the Ed Sullivan show and the Shirelles tried to be on the Ed Sullivan show and they were like and they were allowed to no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> But on his on John Lennon, and I think maybe the rest of the Beatles, but I know for sure that John Lennon on his like bio or whatever for the Ed Sullivan show, it was like he's obsessed with the Shirelles. Yeah. So, well, that's a great point because uh, I actually have a quote here. The Shirelles made their first of several appearances on Dick Clark's American Bandstand in the spring of 1958. And this was a coup for African-American group at the time because when pressure from segregationists in the South caused most television programmers to limit the number of black artists they booked, which is what happened 
happened with the Sullivan Show. They weren't allowed to perform on the Sullivan Show. And later, the Supremes were the first black group to break that in 1964. In 1964, so there was six years difference between when they appeared on the Dick Clark Show and then Mm -hmm. when the Supremes were allowed to go onto the Ed Sullivan Show. So also, this is interesting because, so the Beatles first came to America in 1964 and on their 1963 album please please they have two covers of Sherelle's songs on that record and they have gone on to like do covers of Sherelle's songs just live as well like throughout their career as a band so I do think it's wild and crazy that a band that that Ed Sullivan show was like sorry nah that then the Beatles are like actually we're gonna maybe sing one of their songs on your tv show (laughs) i was just like it's really interesting because also what is taught in the whitewash rock history is like oh these bands all like wrote their own songs they all had so much like musical creativity they all did all of these things and it's like oh their songs are covers (laughs) And it's like the Beatles first were covering a girl band, but also at that time, the Beatles were still referred to as a boy band, still something for girls. So I guess maybe at that time, it's like acceptable because they're a boy band. But the Rolling Stones, so many other bands were just as obsessed with like the Shirelles and other African-American female girl groups. And they would cover their songs and they would change them and they would like try, well, like barely change them. And they just very much were like, okay, we like what you're doing. We're gonna make it white (laughs) but like also not really we're making it white by singing it (laughs) yeah they were making it white by singing it like they were changing nothing except for like the palatable face for racist people in the world i have a few things off of that so first of all the shirelles were the first all-female group to have a number one pop hit in the rock and roll era and so they ushered in a new musical movement that built a multi-racial fan base in the years just prior to the passage of civil rights legislation and the arrival of the beatles as we're just talking about but Mm -hmm. i think what was really funny was like maureen talked to like some basically fans who were there at this time Mm -hmm. and like the quote from this is that hundreds and hundreds of preteens and teenagers packed into theaters carrying on at full throttle as the shrills performed to help me understand the level of screaming of chaos he likened it to the displays of emotion associated with beetle mania the shrills did it first <laughs> that's all i gotta say mic drop the thing that i also found it really interesting about this chapter about the shrills though was that she was talking very much about how their voices didn't fit into like the ideas of what black women's voices should sound like oh yeah and so because of that they sort of snuck through all the barriers of like the white radio and so they were just played on normal radio and they were getting pop hits and all that sort of thing so i just really want to know if these white kids who were showing up to these concerts knew that they were seeing a black band yeah well also they didn't put photographs of them on their albums purposely so people <laughs> wouldn't know they were black so that's actually a really good question it just blows my mind how much these people were shaping this industry and how much it was like acknowledged at the time that they were shaping this industry and yet they had to jump through all these hoops and do all these things to be seen and acknowledged and celebrated in any way shape or form um And meanwhile, even though the Rolling Stones are out there covering the Shirelles or like bringing African-American like backing bands on tour with them and all this stuff sort of really relying heavily. Like I've said, literally rock music was built on the back of these women and they used them like they really did because like we talked about with Erica in our groupies episode, anytime a woman is involved in anything, especially in that era, there's still that sort of like housewife idea. So they're not only being used for a sound 
that white people can't do <laughs> like they're also being used as like mothers and like girlfriends they're literally having to do so many things when they're on tour and like collaborating with these artists but these artists aren't acknowledging them really as collaborators yeah. they're just like acknowledging them as essentially the help yeah and there's several examples of that in this book she has a whole chapter on brown, the song brown sugar yeah. in which she talks about devin wilson marcia hunt and claudia leoner who are all black women that had relations with Mick Jagger in one way or another like wilson was also very close with Jimi hendrix they had a relationship for a while and again she was that thing of the muse of not just the muse not just the inspiration they had a relationship she like took care of them all of this stuff and she had her own musical career and then also with betty davis she ended up marrying miles davis the famous jazz trumpet player and he wanted her to be a housewife and she was <laughs> nah and so she left that marriage and to become a rock and roll chick basically and there's just so much to it where these women had so much going for them but because of the time frame and like all of the bullshit that was going on in america like they weren't allowed to be the face of a movement in the way that they should have been because it's just that thing now where anybody of any color of any like background of whatever can now sort of do whatever music they want to like they're still going to be assholes making comments about it but more people are accepting of it now than they were back then and it's just frustrating even to this day where it's like some of the best like pop punk music is being put out by not white men and yeah. yet these women of color are not being celebrated or being given the honor of being the face of a movement even now and so it's just even more frustrating that back in the day when they literally started the movement, like without the Shirelles, we would probably have nothing. And they weren't like on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine every month. Whereas like the people who were using their music to get ahead were. To your point, in 1966 and 1967, we have the debut of Crawdaddy and Rolling Stone magazines, which were both kind of like these counterculture music magazines that were now covering the rock and roll genre. And Marine goes on to point out that they were, quote, virtually white male fraternities, as in all of the journalists were white men, mm -hmm. and most of the people they covered were white men. And so these journalists denied the cultural accreditation to contemporary black music through benign neglect resulting in marginalization of black music at the end of the 1960s and this deepening division between the marketing and functions of white and black popular music. And so like still because of this, because there's white men in control of what the publications are saying, they're cherry picking who they want to talk about and they have a lot of personalized misogyny and racism. Big surprise there. So already they have this disdain for these women. So it makes sense that they're not going to talk about them in the best light. And so then this, they keep getting buried under these white men it's so frustrating where it's like looking back on something you can just see all of the wrong turns that they made yeah <laughs> and it's like how easy it would have been to like make the right turn because like, like as i said it's like these artists in their biographies like Mick Jagger and like other white artists but just a lot of Mick Jagger in their biographies like when they're interviewed for these books and stuff and even in autobiographies they acknowledge that they were utilizing these black women's voices and their sounds to shape their music that they would cover their songs all these steps of trying to actually explain history the way it was and yet even when they do that it still is like 
a black woman writing a book about other black women who's being like, hey, this happened. Like, I feel like when somebody's discussing like a Mick Jagger documentary, they're not focusing on the black woman that they stole from. They're focusing on like his sex capades and other things. And then these black women who are technically co-main characters of the book of Mick Jagger and like his career become side characters, <laughs> sometimes even like antagonistic characters in these stories because it's like sometimes they might want credit for something and they're not getting it because I feel like a lot of what she's saying is that like these white men viewed these black women as like a subcategory of people she dedicates a whole chapter to brown sugar and like she like very specifically points out how like this song talks about like a lot of stuff that's like not painting them in a very good light but at the end of the day she's got that brown sugar that we can love you know like ooh, it was Mm, not great and then in contrast there were other artists i think it was Jimi hendrix wrote a song about devin wilson Mm -hmm. and like he painted her in like a much more like true authentic light of like who she actually was as a person Mm -hmm. and so there's other example and like Jimi hendrix a black man not a white man so it's just like there's other examples of people doing this i think there was another like female artist who wrote a song about devin wilson also that were like very true to her character Mm -hmm. and mick jagger for as much as he loved black women he was just like brown sugar (laughs) this is the thing and it's the thing that still happens to this day of it's like white people fetishizing either black men or black women you know so it's them again viewing themselves as a higher being because they're white and then them being like i'm not racist i have sex with black people yeah i think that that might in in your scenario might make you more racist because of how you're talking about them and i feel like that's shown a lot in just like the way that mick jagger kind of sings about these black women and also just like the way he's like not respected most of the people he's dated but that's like a whole other that's a whole other episode But Maureen did point out that like Mick Jagger doesn't really like to sing that song anymore in like yeah. if they do sing it, he'll leave out certain lines. And she posed a question like, I wonder if this is because he reconnected with his daughter, Karis. Probably. So Marsha Hunt, who's another figure in this book, who was also a, a musician, a host, like she did, she did a lot of really cool things, but was also a muse and had Mick Jagger's first child. I mean, supposedly the story is that Mick Jagger wanted a boy and it turned out to be a girl and then he lost interest. And then he married Bianca, who is not Marsha Hunt, obviously. And then all these years later, somehow they rekindled his relationship with his firstborn child. Is Mick Jagger um, secretly like King Edward? Why does he need a firstborn son? He has eight children, Sarah. So yes, <laughs> he literally is. Oh, I know literally. that because he's like married to like a ballerina who's like 34 and they yeah, have a baby his youngest child is like four or five yeah 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 it's weird it's a lot it's a lot to unpack there's a lot there <laughs> But yeah, I, I I do find it interesting because it feels like Mick Jagger wants to respect these women. <laughs> and like he tried to by like bringing them on tour and working with them and like changing their music into his music or whatever. But it is interesting because I feel like once Tina Turner like left Ike, left that really dangerous marriage and sort of went her own route of like what she wanted to do with music and became the queen of rock (laughs) that like most people know her as that she was given the respect by all these white men that like the black women before her who they sort of built their careers by copying weren't given so my biggest takeaway from tina turner which like 
again, I knew her as a name. Not, I didn't know anything about her history. Maureen like reiterates this point so many times in this chapter is like Eric Clapton, the Beatles, like Rolling Stones, who they were all fascinated with the way Tina Turner sang. Mm-hmm. So they're all trying to copy Tina Turner. And then when Tina Turner's career is kind of taking a little dive, she's like, rock and roll is popular. I want to do that. She does covers of all of their songs. So she's like appropriating them, appropriating her. And like, it's so crazy. And like, <laughs> she like they had to steal it from her and then she had to steal it back for them to become famous. Like she couldn't just be famous in her own right in the first place. My favorite thing, and like, I feel like it's the best comeuppance ever, is that a lot of these men who covered music by like Glover and Baker and Mama Thornton and the Shirelles and like the Renettes and like all of these other women who like from like the late 50s early 60s then write music that is okay is decent and then Tina's like you know what I I can make that better yeah and then do we know the Rolling Stones <laughs> version of sir of like songs that she's done no I mean I don't I know Tina's version and so I feel like that's the best sort of like <laughs> fucking got you in yeah. the world of just her being able to take those songs turn them into something incredible just completely triple the how good a song is and it's like oh like imagine how good things would have been if like these other black women's music had been on the radio this whole time there's this one part in the chapter where she says there's like a photo with like tina turner and like a bunch of famous white rock and roll men Mm -hmm. and like they're all just like posing together but she's like it kind of looks like a queen and her disciples And I love that. Oh my God, that's incredible. I just feel like there are so many moments where just these white men erase the black women that came before them. And then Tina showed up and was like, a bitch, you tried. Yeah. And one one thing that also like a quote that stuck out to me from this was that Maureen makes the point that like for African-Americans striving for success in the post-1964 rock world, they all had visible association with fellow white musicians and it seemed to be necessary to do so. And she talks about Jimi Hendrix, Slay Stone, Arthur Lee, Prince and Lenny Kravitz even. And we see examples of this with like Alabama Shakes today. But she gets, she says, um, beyond their specific musical contributions, white collaborators mediate the connection between black artists and what is perceived as a white art form and indicate that black artists openness to white people reassuring information for potential white fans as in white musicians being like yeah this black person's okay so you can trust them too which is like Mm -hmm. totally messed up but like in another regard it's kind of like what we talk about a lot today of like white people using their platform to like make places more socially acceptable for everyone it's really interesting i mean there was this quote from the chapter about laverne baker that i think really sort of sat with me that is similar to that point of just how by the late 60s a signifier of rock music was white masculinity and that was what was really focused on and because of that Laverne didn't fit within the ideals of what rock music was even though most of this music that these white men were doing was created by black women but what it says here is that her career typifies both the contribution black artists made to rock and roll and the limitations they routinely encountered in the early years of the genre and so not only did like her gender get in the way but her race got in the way and the way that she performed those songs and I feel like that just had so much to do with all of this of it's like the idea of rock just became so centered 
around white men that that was all people could see and think yeah. about. And I think too, like with Tina Turner, she talks a lot about her sexuality in this chapter and how she did kind of play that sexual angle because like rock and roll was sexual. Mick Jagger was very sexualizing rock and roll, you know? And so there was kind of two like sides of the argument about Tina Turner of some people being like, oh, you're playing into the stereotype of like what a black woman is. And then it's like, well, maybe she's owning it. Maybe she's just being herself. And like, that's mm -hmm. what you need in order to like reclaim that stereotype. And there's a quote here, pushing beyond the boundaries of what counted as authentic black music behavior, Turner embraced a repertoire that spoke to her creative ideals and that offered her greater professional mobility and earning power. She resisted the expectation that she would limit herself to black music. So in the end, Tina Turner really won the lottery here, but it was because of the strife, like the hard work of all the other black women before her too. Yeah. I mean, it's so upsetting to see how much of an uphill battle it was and still yeah. is yeah. for them to get the recognition that they so much deserve. Like, it wasn't until the late 80s that people who didn't make quote unquote rock music were even allowed to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, like, for example, like Mama Thornton, her music wasn't referred to as rock and roll, it was referred to as rhythm and blues. And it's the same thing, like, with the Shirelles. Like, even though they could have been inducted, in the 80s they weren't because it's like they didn't want to acknowledge how much of a stepping stone they were into the creation of rock music and again it's just that thing where it's like the term rock and roll was created by a radio dj to make the more i guess like fast-paced rhythm and blues music that black people were creating into something that could be played on white radio because that's how the world was viewed back then was it was like the pop charts were white music and the r&b charts were black music and yeah. very few and far between times did music cross over and so it's just that thing where it's like i'm not saying that like white artists were like mediocre because that's not the case like they a lot of them were really talented but it's just like really really talented people were looked over and sort of pushed past so that these white people could have success in something that they didn't necessarily create. And I just still think it's hilarious that so many men who are obsessed with rock music are always like, these men were so talented and creative and they did so much. And it's like, okay, but like, how did they get there? How did they come up with this? Like, yes, they were talented, but like this didn't live in their heads. They didn't come up with this. Somebody else did. And they just manified it. Yeah. And to your point, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame started in 1986. And the first woman was Aretha Franklin, who was inducted in 1987. And then it wasn't until 1991 that Laverne Baker was inducted. Which is crazy because now that I'm aware of her, <laughs> like who she actually is, I'm like, this woman literally created everything. And she really, I think, just from listening to a lot of these artists that are mentioned in the book, like you listen to her music and you can hear so much of what rock music has come from, from her sound that she created and it's just kind of mind-blowing in a lot of ways just going back and hearing something and being like wow I can really, really clearly see what sounds and everything that they took from her. I mean, that's really cool because I feel like in the context of this conversation, that makes a lot of sense. But if you're not studying rock and roll or like you don't know, like you don't see those lines. But like when mm -hmm. you actually look at it on paper, you're like, oh shit, like no, for real, you can like trace this out. And I think that that's the one thing that's like really incredible for me and just makes me feel like there's no way going forward that this can possibly possibly be erased any longer is it's like the more people talk about the fact that this happened the less easy it's going to become to 
ignore how similar these sounds are because it's that thing where it's like you have music journalists writing about like an album review or a show review and they always 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 like no matter what no matter how original an artist sounds they're like they sound like this person they sound like that person even when they don't really and so I think that going forward if I'm ever going to write an album review ever again I'm gonna be like you can clearly tell that they ripped off the Shirelles just like everyone before them (laughs) it's like whenever people are like oh yeah like Greta Van Fleet sounds like Led Zeppelin it's like well who does Led Zeppelin sound like for real (laughs) for real so it's like where did that sound really come from and I don't know I just feel like it's really fun as somebody who has for the better half of a year now been just like studying the misogyny and sexism and all these issues within the music industry it's really fun to be able to relearn things that I thought that I already knew and sort of like take off the like white gaze goggles of oh true of history yeah because I feel like there is so much that we're unlearning from doing research on mm-hmm. these subjects and like looking back farther into history and it's like tiny things that we were sort of aware of are becoming so much more in focus and even more so it's kind of like every episode we're like uncovering Atlantis <laughs> Um, because I feel like we're finding like these lost civilizations, which like are, are just lost to us because we live in a white bubble, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just, I think it's really powerful and incredible and really special because we're learning so much and we're able to talk about that knowledge and hopefully broaden even more people's horizons on these things. And it's just been like awe inspiring for me just learning about all this stuff because I thought I was really in the know about a lot of this because most of my background of understanding music was in a childhood obsession with Motown music. So I just was always like, I know about the Black history of music. But like, clearly, again, even in that, they still erase the women. Mm -hmm. Because who fucking needs us, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a really good point of it's like, like you just said, you think you know, but it's Mm -hmm. like, you couldn't even have possibly known because there were other people before you who already erased them. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really important for us just as white women to acknowledge that we're number one, trying our hardest, but number two, that like we do have to sort of go out of our way to make sure that we're educated in what we're talking about Mm -hmm. and like know where a lot of this came from and that a lot of the history of the misogyny in music was very strongly directed at Black women in America. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point because it's like, you know, a lot of times we talk about women's issues on this podcast, but like you add race on top of that, it's an extra layer of discrimination that like Mm -hmm. you and I like can't even fathom or can't even relate to. So it's like us educating ourselves and us reading these histories and us being able to talk about it in this platform is like what we have to do in order to take steps forward from here. Yeah, I feel like there's always that discourse of it's like white women have the privilege of a white body. And so we have this ability to like be heard in a way that other people might not be. And it's like spoken a lot in like the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of these like protests that have been happening of it's like, you're a white woman. These cops most likely are not going to hurt you. Use yourself, like use yourself as a shield, like put yourself out there. And so it's the same thing where it's like, we've been lucky enough for people to trust us as a platform and come here to listen to us talk about these topics. And it's like, we want to be as educated 
complicated as possible. So when talking about things that we have no lived experience in or not a lot of knowledge in, it's important for us to do episodes like this where it's not really in in the same format as normal, but more so in us being like, oh, this is important to acknowledge because like as white women, a lot of our focus has been other white people things because that's just like what we're fed on the radio and all that sort of stuff yeah. and like to acknowledge the deep-seated racist history of it all and just how important people who don't look like us are to the history of this is really necessary to talk about i think that's what like a lot of people are like coming to like their own personal reckonings with especially mm-hmm. like in 2020 like if you weren't already on the train like you probably are now and if you're not <laughs> It's never too late to change to get on the anti-racist train. But I think what my point was going to be was that like it's not enough to just like be not racist. Like you have to like actively be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And you can see just like us talking about the civil rights history, us talking about all these things. It just goes back to all of that. Like it's insane. It's honestly insane how long this fight has been going on for like racial equality. If this is something that interests you, this book is I think one of the best written ones that we've read. I felt like somebody who was really passionate about this was talking to me about it. Yeah. And I feel like when sense. you're when you're reading like a history book, especially, like they can be really hard to get through. And this one I literally read twice because number one, nothing sticks in my brain, but also because like it was written really well. And I think that that like helps me understand it more because I felt like she yeah. really wanted us to understand like what she was talking about and why it was important. So if you're in America and you also want to check out this book, we actually have an affiliate link with IndieBound where you can get it straight from an indie bookstore. How nice is that? So we will leave the link in the description if you want to grab that and check out this book. Yeah, but I feel like this was really fun to discuss with you, which is why I, I like doing these things where we're reading a book and just sort of seeing what topics we sort of get out of it. So thanks for coming with us on this journey today, guys. I feel like Jenna and I's mindset on a lot of things has really shifted. And I feel like this is really going to like come in a lot to future conversations, like realizing just how far back this history of this music really goes and just how far back the misogyny and racism goes. Cause yeah. you know, and they're super intertwined super intertwined it's just crazy i mean just another sidebar but like there's been a lot of discourse on tiktok lately which i know a lot of you have found us on so that's why i'm bringing this up but like about how white women feel oppressed because they're women and then they sort of use that as a way to take out their anger on black women and that there's a lot going on with the whole like white women feminism movement where they sort of exclude black women because they're like well we're oppressed too and it's like yes we're oppressed but like are we (laughs) like i mean like misogyny is an issue that affects all women and unfortunately it's the farther you get from like the expected whiteness or what have you the worse it gets because then you're oppressed not only for being a woman but for being a woman of color and all these other things and there's just been all this discourse about it so I feel like we're going to be a lot more cognizant of that especially after just like doing all this research because again as I as we said at the beginning of the episode like we were aware that rock music was built on the back of black women but we were not this aware yeah (laughs) 
So if you have any thoughts or feelings on what we're talking about today, if you would like to give us any more information or just have a longer conversation about what we're talking about, then we are available on social media. You can find us at name three songs, or you can talk to us personally at Sarah underscore Fagan or at Jenna underscore million on all social media platforms. And if you want any bonus content, you can find that at patreon.com slash name three songs. So thank you so much for joining us on name three songs until next time never let anyone make you feel bad about your favorite band and remember you're never too cool to listen to tina turner and don't forget to subscribe to be notified when each episode comes out and leave us a five-star review they really help the sources we referenced in this episode you can visit name3songs.com with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.